And now, Aquarimaxers, the exciting conclusion to the interview with Nick Shades. This is episode 318B. So the, the filter itself, now I'm familiar with the basic uh, concept of a Hamburg Mountain filter where you basically partition off a section of the tank with uh, a permeable foam, like an open cell foam. So you're doing this on a very much smaller scale within an enclosed box, right? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, you can go to the grocery store, grab yourself uh, those small little Tupperware containers. Ziploc makes them, Gladware makes them. Um, and they're those disposable containers. Um, all I did was I just took a simple uh, aquarium filter, which you would normally use... Um, pardon me, not an aquarium filter, an aquarium pump, which you would use to get, uh, let's say, like a waterfall on an outside pond. Um, if you had an outside pond, you'd use one of those to send water up to a top rocky area and go back down. Um, I took that um, and stuck it inside of one of those Ziploc containers, cut a little hole in the top, put the poly filter in where the inlet of that pump goes, uh, and then just stuffed it into that... Um, into that jar. I did have to drill a small hole into the side of the jar. There's a couple different ways to seal it. I chose silicone because of how small the volume of water is. Because um, the volume of water in any vessel, uh, the amount of pressure or, or ambient PSI, I guess you could call it, uh, is really determined only by the height of the water. Um, in other words, you could have a dam that has uh, let's say 10 million gallons of water, um, that dam, so long as it only goes so high, the pressure will stay the same even if that amount of water extends for miles and miles and miles behind it. Only the height of the water will change the pressure. So the same small concept in that little tiny uh, Pico jar um, with only three gallons of water, it's only about 10 inches tall. Uh, so silicone creating a barrier around the um, the cord, the power cord to the uh, aquarium pump um, only has so much pressure. So that silicone keeps it just fine. Uh, in a larger vessel, I would have to use something like uh, an epoxy, a two-part water weld epoxy uh, in order to do that. But in this case, silicone's just fine. Um, the only special thing that I had to do besides drilling it was I just had to uh, cut the cord and put on a new plug after I had it go through uh, the glass. That was the only little thing I had to work out, but it wasn't very difficult at all. Okay. Yeah, I think I'm following you so far. That makes sense. And then the, uh, so you're drilling near the bottom of the tank or of the jar. Is that yeah, true? Just, yeah, just about... Um, half an inch to two inches uh, above. It, it, in this case, for the one that I sent you pictures of, um, I found that those jars were pretty sturdy. Uh, here's a little secret. I found them at World Market. Um, they were only about $15. Uh, and I went ahead and drilled them there uh, at the base, just above the, the very circle, circular base where the curving of uh, the jar ends, and it just is a straight cylinder. Um, you can generally, when you're drilling tanks, it's always suggested that you drill as center as possible um, because that's where the glass is going to have less of a chance to shatter uh, or crack. 
Um, however, no one ever wants to drill in the center of any piece of glass that's going to be an aquarium because it's the least desirable place that you'd like to see uh, anything going into it. So it was sort of um, a trial and error. Uh, luckily, it was the first trial that uh, worked out fine. I didn't shatter any of the jars that I've done after I figured out that spot for that particular style of jar. I stuck with it, uh, and I haven't changed the placing at all. So by keeping it uh, the drill hole as low as possible, um, I can also keep the amount of uh, substrate low as well uh, and increase as much water volume in there as possible. That makes sense. So now that you, once you've got the pump in there and you've uh, got the cord through it and everything and you've siliconed it, now the uh, plastic container, about how big is that plastic container? It's large enough to contain the pump itself, mm -hmm. but um, do you have a specific size you always use or do you just use different sizes depending on what you can find or how does that work? In the case of these jars, um, I have used the smallest size that I've really been able to find from specifically the Ziploc bag. Now, if anybody from Ziploc is listening, I will gladly accept any, you know, product you want to send me. But uh, for this case, only the Ziploc brand of, uh, of container has worked for me. Um, the smallest one they make, I believe, is about uh, four ounces total. Um, and the smallest aquarium pump that I could find that would fit in there was approximately, I want to say, a 6 to 60 gallons per hour uh, adjustable rate flow. Uh, and I've found a couple different brands of pumps that fit in there, uh, but specifically that Ziploc brand uh, is the smallest that I could get uh, that would fit it, and it's the smallest they sell fits that pump just fine. I found a couple knockoffs of those Tupperware style containers, uh, but they either are too small or too big and they take up too much valuable real estate in that Pico environment. Um, and so by putting um, them, by enclosing the pump inside of them, I do actually have to cut a couple little holes inside of the Tupperware contain those Ziploc containers um, and, uh, you know, sort of squeeze that uh, that poly filter in, in an appropriate way so that it won't block or stall the motor, which does occasionally happen. Um, there are times where uh, with this whole little uh, small ecosystem set up um, that the motor will stall. And uh, when it does, the only way to fix it without taking the whole thing apart is to get a shish kebab skewer and just sort of use it like a chopstick with, well, two of them, like a chopstick and pull whatever is in the way of those pumps. And uh, in the case of uh, this uh, jar setup, occasionally uh, I will have some small snails that will go in there. I use mostly nerite snails to handle algae. I have used a mono shrimp as well, um, as well as uh, the uh, Neocaridina heteropoda. Um, to handle algae, but they really only handle biofilm. But in the case of the nerites, sometimes they're just small enough that they will go down for some reason that outlet uh, pump and they will get stuck in that stall motor. Um, and that, that can lead to the jars failing. So it is still sort of a work in progress as far as for fine tuning it without any flaws, but that's the story of the aquarium hobby. Mm, very true. Very true, but that's part of the fun too. It's oh, a work in progress. It's a lot of fun. So, so you've got the the plastic housing of the the uh, pump now, and you've got the 
the floss in there, and I can visualize that, I think, pretty well. And then when you put the scape in so that the, this box is not visible, how do, you, uh, how do you arrange that with the substrate and with the hardscape and everything? The trick to hiding it at that point, once because there does have to be enough room for uh, water to flow through that uh, container. Um, we'll just call it the Ziploc container from here on out. Uh, in order for that Ziploc container to uh, process water and filter it through the Hamburg filter, um, it does have to have free-flowing water go to it. Um, so the trick there is to get a good piece of driftwood um, and to sort of hollow it out and then cause, uh, drill an actual hole uh, for the outlet uh, in order to um, have water actually go out through the, the filter. Um, the aquarium pumps have a, have a direct line that comes straight out of, um, out of them, goes straight up. Normally you attach like a quarter inch um, silicone tube or a vinyl tube to it and then that would carry on somewhere else into another part of the aquarium or to the top of a, a waterfall. Um, so in this case, all I do is I add a small, tiny bit of that vinyl tube just so that it can get out of the driftwood. What I do is I, I take a piece of driftwood, hollow it out, pop it right on top of where that HMF filter is, uh, and then I drill a hole down the center of the driftwood and just cover the HMF filter from there. Um, it hides it, keeps it camouflaged. Uh, there are a couple different variations I've done. Um, I'm working right now on a uh, saltwater version or a marine version just to house corals. I don't want to put any um, fish in any of these environments. I've tried betas. Um, they work okay, but um, I really am not a fan of putting betas in small environments, uh, no smaller than two and a half gallons. And in the case of these three gallon containers, uh, if I have more substrate in them than about a gallon, I'm only giving a beta two gallons to swim around in. And I prefer betas to have at least about five gallons. Um, but however, in the case of these saltwater uh, jars that I'm starting to set up, um, corals can survive quite well, especially soft corals, uh, pulsing zinnias, uh, greenstone polyps, a lot of those, even though they are live animals, um, they do great in low alkaline, dirty water. They are, that's just what they love. Uh, and in this case, what I can do is I can just take um, rock, live rock, uh, which is not truly live, but uh, it processes in the same way uh, that a canister filter does, but uh, it's very porous. It's almost like ceramic media. And by in hollowing out a piece of live rock, and sticking that HMF filter directly into it without the filter floss, uh, it can go right underneath that um, rock and then just blow straight through the rock in the same way that it does through the driftwood um, and then allows a lot more water volume to remain inside of that small Pico jar. That's a cool idea. I like that. Both the driftwood and the live rock way to do it. I, um, what do you use to hollow the uh, driftwood and the live rock out? Um, well, for a profession now, I am a uh, maintenance technician, so I have all sorts of awesome power tools. Um, all I use is a uh, hammer drill in order to get things going on anything that's rock or calcium-based. In the case of the driftwood, um, I prefer to go to the local fish store and buy driftwood that's been sitting in a tank for a while. Um, sometimes I get a lot of cool uh, critters that stayed on the driftwood. 
um, and they always are fun to watch sprout up in the uh, Pico jars. Uh, and then uh, what they also do uh, by being in a tank already for a long time and already uh, waterlogged is they drill much easier. So I just use a, um, I believe, a half-inch uh, hole boring bit um, just attached to a regular drill. Uh, and just hollow it straight through, uh, and then whatever uh, is needed for the HMF filter in the case of the freshwater, um, I just use a larger uh, hole saw, a uh, carbide-tipped hole saw, um, same thing that you would use for hollowing out uh, a hole or cutting a hole into glass. Uh, they come in a lot of different variations of sizes. Once you use them for this, they will probably not cut anything else, and I wouldn't cut glass with them again. But you can buy them in bulk on eBay um, for not very much, just for maybe a couple bucks a piece. And since these are cool alternatives to lamps, it's a it's a, a fair sacrifice for one drill bit for one of these things to work properly. Uh, and you don't need very much room in order to hollow them out. Uh, I've also found that um, by just starting uh, a hole with one of these hole saws, uh, whether on driftwood or on live rock, once you have it started, it sort of chips away on its own. Um, the waterlogged driftwood, after boring a hole, will pretty much split in a way that if you don't split it in half yourself and then just hollow out what's left and then sort of push it together around the filter, um, if, if it's really that difficult, it's time to find a different piece of driftwood. And the same thing goes with live rock. Uh, if, it, if the piece you're working with doesn't want to be changed, it's time to work with a different piece. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. You're just seeing what, what, is, uh, what is adaptable and what's not. Mm -hmm. And in the case of the live rock, uh, it's usually a very easy uh, medium to fragment. Uh, once you do drill a portion of it, it just sort of chips away. You, you can tap at it with a chisel uh, to fine cut those small pieces, but it takes care of itself. It, it generally will... Uh, allow itself to be molded as needed. Okay. Hmm. Well, and from then on, I guess you're just adding, once you've got the driftwood in the place you want it, or the live rock or whatever, then the rest of it is, is more up to that particular setup and what you want to put in it. Yeah, precisely. Um, in, when I first did the jar, uh, which I, my, my first jar, I should say, that I sent you pictures of, um, it was really just sort of a, a place to uh, see if it would work. It was really just a test procedure. Um, that one ended up taking off um, a lot faster than I did. The lighting that I used for it uh, was a real simple 3-watt LED puck light. It's designed for like under cabinets uh, in your kitchen uh, just to illuminate um, you know, just small little areas, whether underneath the sink and that kind of thing. Uh, when I started putting together the first jars, they um, it wasn't a mindset I had intended to be uh, electrically conscious or ecologically conscious, but after I, I put everything together and started using these small puck lights, which are very, very small profile, they hide completely under the jar's lid and they cannot be seen. Um, they are only three watts, and then the aquarium pump is only 4 watts, so one of these Pico jars only generates 7 watts, which is uh, less than, than a typical lamp you would have anywhere in the house. Um, right. So they're pretty effective um, builds overall. 
Yeah, yeah. So that it doesn't cost much to run them at all. And then you, you were mentioning that you use them as, as lamps. Does that mean you run them in kind of a reverse photo period so they're on when everything else is off? Yeah, I'm a big fan of, uh, I think her name's Diane Wellstead, uh, which yeah. has break in the very center of the of the photo schedule in order to um, keep algae from growing. Um, yeah, the siesta period, yeah. Yes, the siesta period. So usually what I do is I have them running from about 5 a.m. until about 10 a.m., uh, which is part of the day, which is pretty dark. Uh, and then uh, later on in the day from about 2, sometimes 3 o'clock until about 10 p.m. So as long as we're awake, we've at least got lights around the house. Um, I do have a couple different variations, like uh, in the kitchen we have one that's on strictly during the nighttime hours, so in case anyone goes down to the kitchen, there's at least a light there. Uh, the one in the living room is more on a, a standard schedule with that siesta period around the noon hour. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, I, I forgot the exact question you had, but I think that answers it a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it does. Cool. Now, um, there was, let's see, we covered that. And you mentioned some of the stocking that you've used in terms of uh, shrimp. You've kept the mono shrimp and the red cherry shrimp or other varieties thereof, the Neocaridina heteropoda um, mm -hmm. species in its various cultivars um, or varieties. Uh, what else, and uh, the nerite snails and then some other kinds of snails, what else have you stocked them with? And you said you don't really like to stock them with betta, so... Uh, yeah, what do yeah, you I, I like? in there. Um, they do fine. Uh, I just am not a big fan of having bettas in there uh, because it is a smaller environment. Um, it's great. I mean, they look beautiful. Everyone loves to see you know a betta no matter where they are, and they do look great in there. And the bettas are are very happy uh, when they swim around because um, the heat is generated uh, just within the pump itself. Um, mm -hmm. and no is required for the betas, so uh, I do keep a temperature, uh, a thermostat in there, and it usually stays about 78 degrees uh, as long as it's wintertime months or an air-conditioned uh, room. If they get really hot if they're not in an air-conditioned room because that pump does generate quite a bit of heat. Uh, in the summertime, they can get up to about 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, now, there's a lot of uh, the um, ornamental shrimp which can tolerate that. Uh, they don't necessarily breed in those conditions, but they uh, they have a very, very um, good mortality rate. Um, betas, on the other hand, shouldn't necessarily be in that kind of heat. Um, right. So if it's a cold environment where they're going to be, they'll be fine. Um, but as far as for things go, I prefer just to keep it in a Wabakusa style with just uh, algae eaters in there. Um, I'd like to try... Uh, Otosinclus, which are those small little tiny, um, I, I think they're closely related to Poclostomus, um, right. but they are uh, a very, very selective um, shrimp-friendly uh, algae eater that's very, very tiny. Um, and I, I'd like to see if they can uh, do well in them, but I haven't tested them yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they can be sensitive fish. I've kept them before, and um Seems to me like they might do better in larger containers, but it might be worth, uh, you know, it might be worth a try. One thing is though, they do like to live in groups, so you'd have a hard time keeping a good number in there, probably. 
Right, exactly. That's that's where it comes down to is any Pico environment, you're really limited uh, to the types of organisms you, you can have in there. Um, in the case of the, fr the saltwater ones that I'm trying to set up, um, it's a little bit easier to have like a colony of say zoas or pulsing zenia or um, uh, any other number of soft corals in there because um, they're they don't need to move around. They're just going to eat the photosynthetic uh, algae that, that provides sustenance to them and eat any uh, organisms in the water that are small organisms. Um, it's because these lamps are sort of a visual spectacle as much as a functional lamp. Um, by keeping um, livestock that are less mobile is kind of a desire I've always shot for. Um, but as it stands now, besides the algae eaters, yeah, I'm trying to trying to steer away from any fish besides the bettas. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, sounds like uh, that's a pretty good uh, summary of your, your setups. Um, that really helps me understand a little better how they are put together, and I think that will intrigue a lot of our listeners, and I want to try that out. So, um, I think we're we're getting close to our uh, time to to wrap up a bit. So we have a couple more questions for you, if that's all right. Sure. Um, if you could give one piece of advice to beginners or to people who are thinking about getting into the hobby, what would you tell them? Ooh, it's uh, a great question. I would first things first. I would take a. Uh, a look at my surroundings if I was a new hobbyist uh, to the aquarium hobby and I would take a look at what organizations I have in my immediate area if I live in a metropolis like Los Angeles or New York or Philadelphia I would see what aquarium hobbyist organizations there are um, there are so many great organizations associated with the local fish stores that uh, when you go to a local fish store, and I mean as in a small mom and pop place, um, you can really get a good idea of other people in your immediate area who have kept fish uh, that you might be already interested in having and know what you should buy, what you should stay away from, and uh, from there have a lot more success. That is a great idea. Yeah, yeah, I think that that can make uh, a big difference in all sorts of aspects of the hobby. Cool. Um, so we would also like to ask you, um, you mentioned the website for, um, the, for SCAPE, and maybe you want to mention that again, and then any other social media or anything like that that you would like people to um, have to be able to contact you or uh, the organizations you're affiliated with. Sure. Um, yeah, the organization that I'm most closely uh, affiliated with is scapeclub.org, uh, which is S-C-A-P-E-C-L-U-B dot O-R-G, and that is the Southern California Aquatic Plant Enthusiasts Club. Uh, we meet every month in Southern California uh, from San Diego to uh, Ventura and all the way from Santa uh Santa Barbara to San Bernardino, which is basically a lateral and longitudinal uh, limit of how big our organization is. Um, I am also associated with Premier Reefs, which is at SoCaliReefs.org. Uh, 
I'm going to interject here for just a second. Nick contacted me after the recording and told me that the um, link for Premier Reefs is actually SoCaliReefs.com, S-O-C-A-L-I-R-E-E-F-S.com, not .org. So uh, keep that in mind, and I'll return you to your regularly scheduled podcast. Uh, and both of those organizations are fantastic resources in order to step into the hobby, whether you are from the Southern California area or anywhere in the world. We have on both uh, organizations' websites contributors from Montenegro, Serbia, Thailand, uh, all over. I believe there are more countries represented on both of our organizations than uh countries that are not. Um, so if it doesn't matter where you're located, if there's any information that you're interested in finding out, our forums are 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and there is usually someone with a good answer to any question that you might have uh, during any of those hours. Um, and in addition to that, um, I am on Twitter at the Nick Shades, uh, that's at T H E N I C K S H A D E S. Um, I am usually blabbering about a thought I have any moment, given moment, but um, I can be direct messaged on there for any questions uh, about the hobby at any time, and I'd be happy to respond to any questions. Excellent. Oh, that sounds like you have some excellent resources there for us. Sure. I'm always happy to help, and I'm glad to uh, talk about this hobby with anybody who's willing to listen. Well, we're really uh, glad for the opportunity to talk to you, Nick. Thank you for joining us today. And, yeah, um, I really enjoyed uh, talking to you guys. This is a wonderful experience. It has been for us, too, and I'm sure it has been for our listeners. And uh, those of you out there listening, make sure that you... Uh, Take advantage of the resources that uh, Nick has provided, and if you try out his um, his uh, jar project, then let us know. You know, I'm sure he would love to hear about it, and so would we. Yeah, and uh, by all means, if you have any questions about it, feel free to reach me on Twitter. Um, that's probably the easiest way to contact me. Um, if you have any questions about it, um, or if if you just want to short circuit the method and, and ask for me to set up a materials list, or if you'd just like to order one for me, I'd be happy to put it in a box and send it out to you. Cool. Excellent. Yeah, I know it's in, intrigued me. It sounds like a, a great project to do. I'm already thinking, hmm, can I get away with setting one of those up in my office? Uh, maybe. So, you, could, you could do it. Uh, that's, that's really cool. All right, well, thanks again for joining us, Nick. Uh, thank you. Oh, I have one more thing to say. Oh, sure. Uh, may the fish be with you. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Thank you for listening to this edition of the Aquarimax Audio Show. For additional episodes, please visit Aquarimax.com. To leave comments or questions that could be featured on an upcoming podcast, leave a message at 801-477-0629 or email us at info at Aquarimax.com.